You are now listening to a podcast of elegance and class. Welcome to Chris Talks. This is Chris Blunt. How's everybody doing? I hope you're well. I hope you're ready to listen to some real shit. <laughs> uh, this this interview, I would say, is a longer one than what I'm normally um, accustomed to. But this is a great conversation with a friend of mine. And we got a chance to get to know them and know how their mind works. Um, we're, we're having a lot of fun in this interview, but we discuss a lot of serious topics uh, such as trauma and race relations. Those are heavy on this one. So uh, spoiler alert, you know, or warning, fair warning, trigger warning. There, there are a lot of discussions on white supremacy and race relations. We are both come from different worlds. We both come from different backgrounds and things like that, but we connected off a, a lot of things, music being one of them, just in general, and the fact that we are both not here for white comfort in general. <laughs> you know, I've always said that I've never here for white comfort. Uh, this is just this is a reflection of the conversations I feel like everyone should be having. A lot of times that conversations that involve a lot of truth and self-reflection can be harsh. And this is no different uh, while it wasn't necessarily harsh for us we are a product of many a conversations that we've had in the past and it was just a really fun time so you know I, I i just wanted to prepare you all because this is actually not saying it's a different tone but i think all the interviews that i do have very deep meaning and even when i'm having fun there's a sense of there's a sense of of deep purpose in a sense. So I like I like to uh, give everybody that kind of like time to shine as people. And and this person was uh, no different. They did a fantastic job. Um, my friend Morgan Vanderpool, they are a mental health clinician, a movement facilitator, uh, an accomplished, accomplished person that works a lot tirelessly on moving the culture forward as far as race relations trauma healing and how we all deal with the world today um their motto is notice feel choose move and act i find that to be very inspiring so without further ado we're gonna go down and listen to my friend and we're gonna have this kind con- we're gonna deep deep into this conversation i hope you all enjoy Quick question before we start all this. Like, at what point after an orgasm do you bring up um, racial issues with anyone? Well, I hope that they've been brought up before orgasm with each other. Nah, nah, nah. Just guys just met. Everything's cool. And then afterwards, you'd be like, what do you think of Black Lives Matter? Like, that's a definitely post- post conversation dude i don't want to fuck anybody that has some sort of (laughs) idea that's gonna put like humanity at risk fuck that because then they'd put my body at risk because if they're like willing to say i don't know black lives Mm." oh that's awesome that's a great thing that's a prereq yo that is a prereq that's a prereq that what is the what is the the application process the vetting process yes (laughs) what is the application process for you i I can i can only imagine 
all the things that go with this. And, and yes, I I, re- I recognize that you are you are a well educated professor, academia, things like that. But I'm gonna ask you foolishness for the first round. Let's <laughs> so, do it. No, this is we're humans at the end of it. And exactly. fuck, fuck academia. Yeah, yeah. They're so slow. Oh, Oh. Thank you for the alphabet soup at the end of my last name that lets me sign some letters to make liberation happen. But That's other right. than that, fuck academia. Exactly. Sometimes I just want to know ratchet shit about doctors. <laughs> so <laughs> so you, um, want, you want to know the vetting process? Yeah. What's your vetting process like? Um. Well, breath is everything. Okay. Breath is everything. Breath shows how safe and secure that person feels within themselves. Mm. How cap- cap- capable they are of connecting. How capable they are of listening. So, like, I first and foremost check out how somebody breathes around me. Oh, that's interesting. And how they breathe within their own body. Then I apologize. And then, and then yeah. I do ask tough questions. Good. And see how their body breathes. Oh, that's awesome. It's that's real clear. Like a lie detector test. Oh, it's real. Yeah. Oh, I like that. Yeah. I like that. For those listening, that's a good idea. For real. And that's what like, we're going to get into about test. how much your breath and your polyvagal system plays into the fact of how you can participate in healing and social justice. Bars. And right. having good sex uh-huh. is part of the process. Like, if right. I'm going to be able to trust you. This is something that, okay, Aaron Johnson, forgive me for uniting these two ideas if you do not agree. But... <laughs> <laughs> We're calling out names. Yes. (laughs) But Aaron Johnson, one of my mentors, who is one of the co-founding folks of African descent, along with Portia B, that started Holistic Resistance, um, is like, if you're going to do racial justice work with me, you are committing your life to me more than saying I do at the altar. Mm. Because you are willing to put your life on the line. Yeah. For safety and for restoration and for things that we call justice. So. That's actually, yeah. That's, that's if real. you are going to take my survivorship to bed, mm-hmm. that means that you need to be able to keep me safe and know all of the ways that I've been impacted by violence. And I better know all of the ways that you've been impacted by violence, at least enough to know what questions to ask when. I'm taking all the notes, all the notes. That's great. That is what I'm talking about. So my vetting process is how close do I want to get to you? How safe do I need you to uh-huh. keep me? Yeah. Yeah. And then I'll ask the questions I need to know to make sure that I can keep myself safe and I can keep you safe. Absolutely. All the all the this falls under the category of vulnerability. For real. And yeah. And and the deepest level of vulnerability because it's it has to deal with survival. It has to deal with a level of comfort. Beyond comfort, because like fuck comfort. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean that. But but connection. Yeah. Connection. Connection. And And Mm. what I I mean by comfort is not social comfort. There you go. But the comfort of being oneself around another person's self. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. All right. That's how we're starting this episode now. Absolutely. All right. So, (laughs) you know, I like to welcome you to Chris Talks. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) That's why I was like, yeah, I'm going to start. I'm going to start off people with wild questions. This is great. Maybe not this season, but definitely you're the start of that, you know? I'll happily be the guinea pig. Exactly. Thank you. Thank you. Why are you hiding a child? I'm joking. I'm joking. You're not. All right. So, um, <laughs> all right. So we're going to get into a lot of things. Um, who, I'm, who I'm with right now is a dear friend of mine. Uh, they are very educated. And we're going to talk about some heavy things uh, because this is what we usually talk about somewhere in between the foolishness. And very heavy. Yeah. Which I love. I love the duality of that. That oscillation you know, is super fun. It's a, it's a great thing. I and laugh really loud, y'all. So, like, if you do have some sound sensitivities, prepare yourself. <laughs> we will we will fix that in post. Fuck, <laughs> fuck their ears. 
Fuck their ears. No, y'all. No, no, just, no. It's, it's just a, it's a heads up. Now they're prepared. No, nah, Jop got us. My friend, <laughs> my friend Jop got has us. Uh, all right. So um, first things first. Yes. Dear friend. Mm-hmm. Morgan Vanderpool. Yes. Who are you? Who am I? For the audience. Yes. Oh, I am a, let's see, a fantastically non-binary queer human that is, has a deep conviction to be able to use whatever access to safety I have to be able to create it for others. Um, I am super empathic. I have the opportunity of accompanying folks in their restoration of their nervous system during and after the survivorship of complex trauma. Um, Mm -hmm. And that is the survivorship of any sort of intersecting system of oppression. And I get to do that in my friendships and the folks that I live with, the communities I exist in, the folks that pay me to do that with them. But I'm all about it, wherever I'm at. I'm a dancer, mover. Mm. Um, I feel much more at home when I'm speaking Spanish. Um, I've spent a lot of time in Latin America, mm. the Caribbean, um, Central America, and Mexico. Okay, and that's, that's awesome. So, and I'm a, yeah. yeah, unwinding the impacts of white supremacy within myself and within the world. All right, that sounds that's that's a good intro. That's a good intro. Uh, let we're gonna get into getting to know you a bit more, and then we're gonna get into the philosophy of what you do and how you do things. Let's do it. All right, let's do it. First things first. Where are you originally from? Um, uh, my mama's womb. Okay, that's that's very detailed. Let's <laughs> let's um let's dial it back a little bit. I was born in Santa Cruz, California. Oh, okay, that's perfect. <laughs> all right, because I was like, <laughs> where the mountains and the redwoods meet, meet the ocean. Yes. <laughs> um, I burst out of that bubble when I was like fourteen, fifteen, when I went to Mexico for the first time, and then moved away from home when I was eighteen. I lived on the border of San Diego and Tijuana for about five years Mm. um, and spent time living as well in Chile and Costa Rica. Um, And then from there, I popped up here because I fell in love with somebody who needed to be stationed up here Mm. um, and have been in, uh, you know, these unceded territories of the Puyallup tribe called Tacoma um, for about 12 years. Mm. And I think this is where my my roots have been planted. Excellent, excellent. That's that's great. Let's go back. I want to go back to your childhood. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're born in a pretty much a traditional family. Am I correct? For the most part, in some ways, yeah. You in know. some ways, yeah. Um, what was your childhood like, and how did it? How do you see ways the way it shaped you to be who you are now? Ooh. So I grew up in a family where my parents made some really solid commitments um, that I am very proud of. And then there's some stuff, you know, that like they didn't know how to take care of. And so I'm holding them in grace in that balance. Mm -hmm. Um, But I did grow up in a a community that was like very much protected by systems of white supremacy. Um, And as a white person, I was able to live in the forest where I knew that I would be completely safe whenever. Um, and was allotted a lot of freedoms by my family to be as embodied as I could be because they watched me and like were empathic enough to be like, whoa, you're hyperactive as fuck. Mm -hmm. Um, And you're really, 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 really curious and smart. So like, let's foster those things. So they did a lot of stuff to like make sure that I could have access to dance and athletics um, and valued my education. Uh, 
And they also made some really big commitments to like stop transgenerational trauma in its tracks mm. as it had to do with substance abuse and physical abuse um, and, and sexual abuse too. Um, mm. And so they did as best as they could to create a safe as of environment as possible. Um, and for better or for worse, they're still together to this day, my parents, All right. although they had previously been married before having me. Um, and they fought for me to come into this world. So that's um, awesome. Yeah, that's good. That's mm-hmm. good. I feel like that's it's very purposeful. Yeah, uh, they. I feel like they did it with a specific purpose, and I feel like with some tequila on a blanket in Mazatlan mm. Mm, after hang gliding. Sweet love. Sweet love. <laughs> on the fact that you asked your parents that question. No, they just told me. They just told you, which I'm uh, thankful for. I have the blanket still. That is awesome. Yep. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, mom, y'all can keep that one. Um, I'm just going to sit here with my therapist and discuss these things. But thank you for being so full. You didn't have to. My kid, my kids, I feel like my kids should probably not know all that. Like, yo, detail I know. Like you were created in love uh-huh. and rum. Like you're created in love and wrong. I think it has an impact. <laughs> yes, it does. It has an impact. <laughs> so you know, oh man, that is that is awesome. That is awesome. So all right, so I want to get into you had you had kind of mentioned you uh, spent a lot of time on the border of um you said uh, San Diego and and Tijuana and Tijuana, which is is very interesting, and that's a that's a very interesting take to go from Santa Cruz down there and mm-hmm. kind of have that have that life like. What was your experience like there and what led you there? To San Diego? Yeah. Uh, that's where I did my undergrad at UC San Diego. Okay. Oh, mm-hmm. Awesome. Awesome. And as a human development major, Latin American studies minor and dance minor, like I was very much like, what is the embodied movement of those like three worlds? Like how do we tick as humans? How do we heal? Um, and particularly after I came back from living in Chile where I saw on the ground big old impacts of how the u.s funded dictatorship and militarized dictatorship played Mm. out on that earth and so when i came back i think my eyes got peeled wide open and i could see it much more viscerally and concretely where i was currently living um and it was during the bush era and so many dynamics around like immigration policy um and so it was definitely like my first experience of what does protesting look like here um on what i call quote unquote home Mm. um and who do I trust? Who do I listen to? How do I like plug into the things that I believe in? Um, and was got to be a part of protests that like close the fucking border. Mm-hmm. Um, mm. And yeah. Wow. And I'm so grateful I'm here up here where there's seasons. Yeah. Seasons are dope. Seasons are amazing. It's hot as fuck down there. It's hot as fuck. Not. The food is great. Not intolerable. <laughs> yeah. It's always too nice. Really? That's the problem. It's always too nice. It's you, always too nice. You so you that, can always be outside. Yeah. And you can like always do the things that you want to do. So you don't necessarily savor them. So you become kind of apathetic. Mm. Where if you've met somebody who's lived in the Pacific Northwest for any hot minute, summer. Summer. We are shit. alive. Yes. Like. You know what? That's what it was like in Chicago. Because Chicago, <laughs> the winter is so brutal. Yep. That by the time spring comes, it's like, oh, I'm out. It's everything. Mm-hmm. I'm doing all the things. We're mm-hmm. going out. Mm-hmm. I'm going to shoot this dude that I've been having beef with before wintertime, but it was too cold. Mm. All the things. It was, was out. A, it was a whole thing. Yeah. It was a whole thing. I remember that about Chicago. And being just grateful for sun. Mm-hmm. You know? <laughs> but out there, yeah, the sun's in your face all the time. You can be apathetic. Like, I guess. No, whatever. You know? I'll go to the yeah. beach tomorrow. Privilege. 
Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> Privileged son. So, all right. So you you you're doing this, and you you're. It seems like you're coming into the realization that the world is um or seeing how America is viewed outside this country is not as um innocent or as just as it may be inside the country. What do you, how do you? Well, it's not just it's not just inside the country. Yeah, but like it's not just inside the country. <laughs> but you know, a lot of a lot of white people mm-hmm. are brought up under the guise that. You know, we good American apple pie, right? Sure. Yeah, and so this is something that you realized mm-hmm. that kind of came in is like, oh, not only are we fucked up, you know, mm-hmm. we might be the bad guys. Well, I think my parents kind of yeah. underestimated what it meant to be like, honey, we really want you to become bilingual. Mm. So you become bilingual at twelve. Yeah, and your family can't hear the stories that are happening around you. Mm. Like you learn stuff, and you don't have anybody to talk to about it yeah yeah and so like my unlearning i think started when i started learning spanish okay um because i was able to hear the direct stories of the survivors of like modern day colonialism on our soil yeah you know like and then you start to integrate that shit and then you go down to a country where like we militarize their dictatorship and i would have been one of the people that they would have quote unquote disappeared Mm. or burned alive being a queer artist like gotcha it goes real quick yeah and when you come back and you tell your family i can be patriotic no longer and they're like nah that'll rub off and i'm like nah 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 i sit in the cast chamber where i would have died it's not gonna rub off yeah because you've seen things you can't unsee you you can't unhear them you can't unfeel mm, them mm, yeah that's heavy that's heavy what was the answer your question yeah you did oh cool you did i was gonna ask you what was the at the work like when you got back right because you, you come back as a whole different person. Mm-hmm. Um, and I imagine something like that experience is very eye-opening, jarring. And it's like, how did you go about processing to work on the change that you, you know, because I'm not saying you went in there, you know, like you, you've been kind of unlearning since 12. So by that time, it was more of a confirmation um, of what you figured out already. Mm-hmm. So... When you got back, what was what was the mission in a sense? Because it mm-hmm. felt like you mm-hmm. came back mm-hmm. with, with a mission and purpose. Well, I think, yeah, the mission definitely got implanted when I was like 14, the first time that I went to go stay in Mexico mm. um, and like got my shit flipped real fast on like what actually cultivates joy. Um, and that is like soulful connection. Mm. Nothing else matters. So soulful connection to the earth and soulful, soulful connection to each other. So when my shit got flipped when I was like 14, then that sort of like started cultivating this like curiosity, like deep, deep, deep seated curiosity around like what creates connection? What actually creates healing? So like, can we look all of this violence in the eyes and actually come up with a solution? Um, And so it was a very much like embodied relational experience of like, I need to figure out what the solution is to global trauma Mm. and global violence. Because if we're not doing that, then we're just fucked. Yeah, indeed. Um, (laughs) I feel that that we have a lot going on in the world today that reflects a lot of trauma. Yeah. Did you see, you know, you've come up in the the news cycle of the world, right? You're very present. You seem like you're very present in the policies and the, the political climate and also the social climate 
Because I feel like those are two different things. Social climate, political They're hard climate. to keep track of both of them at the same time. So I'm always feeling like I'm a little behind in one of them. Uh-huh. But I try to track both of them. Gotcha. But some things are very, just as old as time. Oh, 100%. Yeah. Like the, the let's say racial. Well, it's not hard to track colonialism, y'all. No, it isn't. Or human brutalization. No, that's just that's been, just been going on for a long ass a time. Long time, and we've yeah. done, and so more so, what we're tracking now is like, what are the things that we've done to disassociate from them, mm. and how can we stop disassociating? Because the proof's in the fucking pudding. There's okay. no, there's no. We're at it. I think that one. I'm so thankful that I'm born right now, or when mm. I was born when I was two twenty two, nineteen eighty five, y'all. All right. Um, to be an adult and be in my like position of like capacity for collaboration and like in leveraging mm-hmm. during this time in history because we have such a confluence of like we don't have need any more scientific proof no we don't the, the one of the ways in which white supremacy has kept truth at bay is to say that we need academic proof for it and then they've created an academic system by which we have to create all of the different forms of like provable research that shit's real yeah when pachamama and mother earth and the universe has been like we've been real the whole time you know, and like y'all fucking things up with violence has been real the whole time. But now we're like, OK, we have enough documentable, citable proof. Mm-hmm. The proof is here. The proof that white supremacy has said this is my caliber of understanding and needing to be able to change my mind. It's all here. And now we're at this cataclysmic tipping point of like, will we start to believe and see, be willing enough to see the impacts of history and do something about it? What I what I don't get is the is America's. Um, revisionist history. I think at some point we we go in the story we've been telling since the Fourth of July. Yeah, the fourth the Fourth of <laughs> July. It's very much like you know we and they they said history is told by the winners, right? Mm. But I was like, but we right here, like mm. still right here, mm-hmm. and it's like y'all don't realize this is fucked up. You know, I've I've I'm Let's black. Define winning. Well, yeah, but, but I think, hang on. I'm not interrupting you. Go. Oh, go ahead. So like America has I've always felt like America has this obsession with winning or the the it's insane with the the concept of winning mm-hmm. as if everyone else has to lose mm-hmm. in order to get freedom. That binary is so dangerous. Yeah, exactly. And I think that this is not about it. This is not about a sense of winning more so equality, equity and peace. Right. So I think that me growing up as a black person. I've always kind of known what America is about. Like uh, uh, most black people in America have gotten a speech when they were young about who they are, how they got to try twice as hard to be accepted or watch out for the police and things like that. White people don't actually get those speeches. They get the birds and the bees speech. You know what I'm saying? But we don't get that. And cry when you get pulled over. That was what I was told. Really? Cry when you get pulled over? Yeah. Wow. That is, that is Sexism like. Sexism and white supremacy crisscross. Boom. Ooh. Karen 101. Ooh. And so. <laughs> Wow, that's amazing. Like, so we are at, do you think, how do you feel about today's climate? Because it seems like we are at, like, we, we've seen moments where people rioted. We've seen moments where there have been these incredible losses that changed the mind frame of the social consciousness of America. Yeah. This, this, some people are saying this feels different. I, I am less inclined to feel that way. I feel like this is a combination of the disparities of of employment. Um, this is COVID, right? And this is 
frankly, people being bored. And then all this is happening because, you know, when you you add all those all those ingredients plus live black death. Right. You're going to get something different. How do you feel about this current climate? And we're going to get into detail about white people. But first of all, (laughs) I want to ask you about how do you feel about this current climate as a person who studied trauma, as a person who studied pain, like. Is America all going through something right now? In a sense, that's that's unique. Yeah. Mm. What are your thoughts? America. Yeah, we can go many ways with this, but like America is so good. At disassociating from the pain that it causes. Mm. It's fucking brilliant at it. And almost every system is designed to keep us distracted. Interesting. Interesting. To keep us completely distracted and COVID Mm -hmm. and the like willingness for folks to publicize violence happening simultaneously is actually fascinating because COVID in and of itself is making an environment in which folks feel the most vulnerable they have ever felt. Mm. They're vulnerable to capitalism. They're vulnerable in their bodies. They're vulnerable to all of the systems that they've been able to keep at bay because capitalism says keep going and don't pay attention and keep working harder. And if you work harder, you'll be okay, which is an absolute lie. Mm. And so the fact that like nobody can keep lying to themselves anymore right now because of COVID is making it possible for folks to actually turn and see like, why is this racial justice uprising that is like the most widespread and loud and sustaining that we've seen for multiple decades. And also, you know, like sidebar kid growing up on the West coast, we learned about the civil rights movement of being something that happened in the other part of the country that we would never need to pay attention to that because the West is better mm-hmm. that we never had that kind of racism because we're newer. That's what I was told as a kid that we're impervious to racism. Yeah. Yeah. But like the fact that COVID has made it universal and literally the dynamics that are happening in the United States are happening in every single country because this virus is impacting everybody. Yeah. So it's no longer localized. It's global. And because it's global, everybody's feeling it and everybody's having to make choices about their safety and recognizing who's kept safe and who's not based off of the systems that are currently present. Mm. And from some folks are finding it to be absolutely intolerable about who's not kept safe. And I think that is new mm. because the capacity to other and to say that it's somebody else's experience that's happening far enough away from me that I'm not going to pay sustained attention yeah. and people will do it. We were talking about the five minute radius. Yeah. Literally the five minute radius is what people pay attention to sometimes. Mm. So if you can move yourself five minutes away from the kind of violence that would need tension by systemic change then you'll have a lesser propensity i would love to study this actually you'd have a lesser propensity to engage in social justice okay because you're so well conditioned by like white-bodied supremacy in the system that we're in to disconnect okay i can see that but covid says we can't disconnect yeah because it's happening all the time but some folks just think that the solution's a mask well because it's uncomfortable Mm, that's good un- there. Yeah. That's good there. Yeah. That's good there. It's uncomfortable. I would say that do you think it's some some of its willful ignorance, uh, some of its, you know, definitely feelings of white guilt per se. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the things that I've gotten that's happened to me 
is that we I, I get, you know, when everything popped off, right? I got tons of when, when when did it pop off in your brain? When it no, no, no. Everything's always been popped off. Thank you. Um, so like <laughs> when it became popping <laughs> too. <laughs> when it became popping to be guilty for white people. Um you know, 2016, uh, all the recent things that happened with, you know, your Breonna Taylor's, George Floyd, and, and so forth, and so on, Mike Brown, Sandra Bland. Manuel like Ellis. Yes, Manuel Ellis. Uh, I, get, I get always a barrage of, like, text messages and emails and calls from different white friends. And, and to be honest with you, I don't think it's, it's disingenuous. I think it's something that where people see something where they can't ignore it. Mm. And they always ask me, well, how can I be a better ally? And how can I be a better white person? How, and, and I ask you, as someone who has been working towards this, like who, who works with, with this type of trauma, mm-hmm. what, is your, what is your take on that? And honestly, for those listening, what would you suggest? They have like this borderline orgasm um, going on in their face because they they can't wait to talk about this. So this is the thing. Oh, this is gonna be funny. Go ahead. This is real funny. Um, let's see where do I want to start. Um. I mean, we are like we're being asked to step into direct trauma work, every mm-hmm. single person. But our work's different. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's brand new for a lot of folks. Um, and it gets down to learning at our baseline how our nervous systems function and what our nervous systems have done to be able to survive what we've survived. And when we map it that way, it all fucking makes sense if we choose to actually feel reality. Mm. And feeling reality is one of the most challenging things to do viscerally. And we haven't built robust enough nervous systems to do that while sustaining relationship. And that's kind of like our ultimatum right now if we're going to continue to survive together. Mm-hmm. I kind of want to take a time out. Okay. When you say something like ultimatum, you use the word ultimatum. Do you think that white people are at this kind of breaking point when it comes to American racism? Goddamn hope so. I pray deep, <laughs> deep, deep into my marrow that I hope so. Because it sounds like it's something like, oh, this is different. And maybe I'm a pessimist, but I feel like this is like, it's just the popping thing of the week. Like when you see people using the term Black Lives Matter and it becomes very trendy. And part of it is I think of the, I think of how people treat Cinco de Mayo, Right. You know, Cinco de Mayo comes and it's a deeper meeting for, for people who are, uh, you know, from from the origins of that. Right. But, you know, a lot of people just it's use- a super localized holiday that should never have been globalized to have been capitalized by the United States to drink more alcohol and wear things that don't apply to your culture. 
Because folks not even throughout like the entirety of Mexico celebrate Cinco de Mayo. It's super localized to Guadalajara. Like it doesn't make sense. It fucking exactly. So it's like this is just a I don't want it to turn into oh yeah, like it's Black Lives Matter Day. Harambe. I'm gonna wear this daishiki, some kente cloth. Oh make me vomit. And drink some Hennessy because that's what black people do when they wanna matter. I don't I don't need that. No. And I see that I see remnants of that coming up and it's it's a little unsettling sure and like and, and it all starts with like you know the corporations are like we too like we johnson and johnson believes in black lives matter or oh, yeah because otherwise they're going to be tanked right now absolutely it's it. it's very popular it's become you know it's become the end thing but it is an ultimatum like it, okay yeah. so did you have a question in there? No, no, no. Go ahead. I was going to say, what you mean by the ultimatum, explain that ultimatum. Yeah. Yeah. Because I don't, I, I, I see where you're going, but I, I would like more, I don't know, I want to I see more depth in, in, in what you mean by that. Sure. Yeah. Go ahead. Okay. So there's always going to be the like capitalistic robots that go off of the thing that's profitable. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Okay. So we can't watch them for how social change is going to happen. No, you have to watch. Honestly, you have to watch the people. You have to watch the people. Yeah. So when we're watching the people, I think what we're held up against, too, is like what we were talking about with COVID is that our vulnerability is at the very, very forefront. That like life is precious and we're starting to pay attention to the ways in which we've been kept safe or been put at risk over and over and over again, dependent upon our identities. Mm. Mm. Indeed. So there is finally a pervasive and global conversation about who's kept safe and who's not. Okay. And that, I think, is the cataclysmic difference that is leading us to this ultimatum of how do I stay alive? Because climate crisis, COVID, and racial justice uprising all co-occurring are making people pay attention to think a little bit differently. So the ultimatum is like, how do I keep myself alive? And that's where our trauma history comes in and coming to terms with our trauma history and our survivorship. Mm-hmm. And particularly instead of the, a lot of times within like the ways that oppression has been studied, the oppressed are studied by the oppressor. Yeah. And yeah. so the shift within that is that we now have an opportunity to be able to study how did people how have people complicitly perpetrated or how have people complicitly oppressed um, so that we can actually fully as much as we can disengage from oppressive systems if we really actually truly believe that they exist and that they're causing harm because they're not something that's happening separate from us everything is interconnected every choice that you make either perpetuates systems of harm or they perpetuate connection and possibility healing and ease and all of the things that we want to generate for us for, to be able to sustain life on this planet. Mm. And so getting to, when I want to talk about trauma work and getting to know our survivorship responses, that means diving into knowing how our nervous systems work and like the way that white, white bodied supremacy plays out coin term from Resmamenica um, is that we're able to completely disconnect mm. from sensations in our body so that we can keep ourselves safe. Okay. And, we, and that's one of the ways that we survive. We survive via these five survival responses, which are fight, flight, freeze, submit, or fawn. Mm. And so when you talk about the ultimatum of survivorship right now, as far as the responsibility of white folks or anybody, and we've talked about this before, Chris, anybody yeah. who adopts white-bodied supremacy mm-hmm. as their rule of law, no matter how much melanin is in their skin, yes. 
then we are in an unlearning process of how have I ever unintentionally participated in those systems. Mm. That's the gold mine right now okay. of being able to make change within white folks. Okay. Because we have been raised to believe that we are good hearted, loving, hardworking, like all of the lies that we've been told about who we are and how good we are. We in proposing the idea that we have participated in a system that caused violence mm. sets off this ripple effect of our own survival responses. Okay. Our survival response as a human race, as everybody who is like part of the homo sapien world is homo sapien world. Mm-hmm. When we have either a direct threat to our bodily integrity or a direct or an indirect threat to an idea of who we are, our systems behave the same. Oh, okay. So what we have right now is a like heightened extent, ex, um, extent of feeling the systems of oppression by folks who have experienced oppression because of their identities. Mm. So their survival responses are lit. Yeah. Our, and I will include myself for the parts of myself that has experienced oppression, like our survivals are, are lit, survival systems are lit. Mm-hmm. And the folks who have any piece of ourselves, primarily folks who are white right now, um, who have been told that they are good, are now getting the, like, the message that, yo, you've participated in violence because you did nothing. Mm. You said you nothing. Com- you were complicit. You were complicit. Mm. And that idea is shattering folks because our systems are surviving like they react that same way and so like getting to know what are we like what ways are we fighting ineffectively what ways are we fleeing ineffectively what ways are we freezing ineffectively hey microphone what ways are we submitting ineffectively and which ways are we fawning and so there's kind of this interesting like divide that happens that like white folks when challenged about the idea of who they are being like yo that idea was kind of racist or like mm. by the fact that you bank with that person do you know how many indigenous folks you kill every year mm. those ideas are very scary folks will fight you mm-hmm. or they will avoid that conversation like nobody's fucking business like yeah. oh the avoidance techniques shout out to like if you haven't read the book white fragility there's this like code of conduct in the back mm-hmm. read it it for me and I think you would enjoy it too. Yes. Great humor on like the avoidance tactics yeah. that I was downloaded. Mm. Um, but the ones that are more insidious that we haven't actually paid attention to as much and are less visible mm-hmm. are when we freeze, when we submit, and when we fawn. And those are the three for white folks. That's where our complicit perpetrator, per, per, bleh, complicit perpetratorship plays in. That's a tongue twister. Go on. It's fine. Complicit participation. And I think that mm. we can talk about it that way. We've complicitly participated in something that we told was okay to play. Yeah. Yeah. And so we have submitted, mm-hmm. meaning that we've just got gone along to get along. Mm-hmm. When our boss like is definitely like, for example, like toting an ideology, a teacher's toting an ideology, a father's toting an ideology that our body goes, wait a second. We go, oh, well, they're in charge of my life. They're going to make me safe. I'll just go flow along. Mm. But we do that instinctually. It's not a conscious choice. So that's one of the places of forgiveness for white folks is that a lot of this has been instinctual. It has not been conscious. So your conscious self is not under critique. You're like your survivorship is under critique. Yeah. The way that your like body has like perpetuated violence to make sure you could stay safe. Mm. Also, like, so submitting is really tricky. Yeah. Because we haven't talked about that that much. 
fawning is also really tricky in which we like our bodies will click into copying the behaviors of an ideology or a person or a system that we can tell isn't quite right or safe for everybody but we'll talk like that we'll write like that Mm -hmm. we'll like we'll do those things yeah yeah right um and then the freeze response although it's a little bit more apparent it's also one of the most um shame inducing responses Mm. and these three actually induce the most amount of shame because they're the least talked about survival responses they don't make sense in your body and they feel incongruent to like some sort of action towards fighting a thing okay so and when we talk about like fight flight freeze submit or fawn for white folks we need to pay a shit ton of attention to how we have either frozen, submitted, or fond to systems of white supremacy. Mm, okay. What ideas have we copied? What behaviors have we copied? Which ways have we stayed silent? Which ways have we got along to get along? Mm-hmm. Which ways have we have frozen and stayed silent as well when we're faced with an unjust situation? Yeah. Because we don't train for that shit. We're trained to either like fight the idea that it exists or just avoid the fuck out of it and we'll be fine. Yeah. And it's it's never going to be okay. No. No. And that's how we keep running. I feel like America keeps going in these circles where we have moments of enlightenment, of revolution. It's not the first time people have thought, oh, white supremacy is a thing. It was blatant. But it's more so. But it's do I actually belong to that? Mm-hmm. Can I take responsibility for that, or do I do have such a good talent of othering even the thing that I might be a part of? Right? Yeah, it's the that's not me. I'm not racist. Mm-hmm. And to assume that white people are racist, all white people are racist, is is a sense of attack. They everybody feels attacked in a certain way. Mm-hmm. So I remember you mentioning something about white people doing the beginning workings of dismantling the white supremacists within themselves mm-hmm. and coming to grips. Do you think it's a hard thing for people to come to grips with the violence of it? Not just the, cause a lot of people are cool with the, Oh, I get it. I'm afforded more privilege than, than other people. And that's okay. Because that means, you know, Hey, I get jobs or I get a thing. I'm, I'm the older sibling. Of this situation. But I think when you think about the historical violence of it all, like the we used to hang you people after church, mm. it, it becomes more, I think, I think it, may, it becomes more unsettling for them to think about. And do you think that everybody should kind of look at that and be like, no, this is real. Like they burned and they they murdered people for sport in America. Yep. I think that's I think that's a very important thing to look at. Mm. Yeah. Um, and uh, like. We've done this interview like three or four times, I know so I'm trying to figure out which thing I've said in this one or not. But what nah, I will go good. towards is like. So this is where studying how change happens mm-hmm. effectively within our neurobiology gets paired with being honest about those kinds of truths. Mm. And so, like, everything does need to happen in stages. Development needs to happen in stages. Growth needs to happen in stages. Like, you can't ask a seed to be a tree. That's true. You know, you can, you can say, hey, seed, I'm going to water you enough so that you could become a little, like, sprig. And then, like, things start to grow. So we do need to figure out how to map which stages of growth everybody's in 
and then challenge each other to be in the very next stage of growth as quickly as possible and as effectively as possible. So we do need to titrate this work. Mm-hmm. We can't sh- like it's just like a funnel. You can't shove the same content at the top down to the same hole. It takes some time to sift. Yeah. Um, there are going to be different windows of tolerance in different fields of work. And every single one needs to have a revolution happening in it. So it's mm-hmm. kind of like rings of a tree or densities of a galaxy spiraling as well. When you think about like which layer are you on, which level of density are you at, which momentum are you, like, are you in, what stage of growth are you in. So like doing those kinds of assessments are necessary so that we can scaffold the experience for folks to be able to build nervous systems that are robust enough to do the kind of work that's necessary. So mm-hmm. if I have built my nervous system to be able to do some level of like as a white person building my nervous system to be able to engage in social justice work for like let's say 20 years now like that's 20 years of building of language of physical resistance of being able to stay connected to like fostering relationships there's like been this building to the momentum that i can carry right now and if somebody's two weeks in i can't expect that same kind of labor possible but i do need to remember what it was like two weeks in when i was at it and what skills did i need and that person needs them stat tying it back to the ultimatum because at the end of the day is down to our capacity to be able to protect each other. Got it. We have to hold ourselves accountable or else. Yeah. Or Got else it. we will die. Yeah. All right. I, I, <laughs> all of us. And that's all the, of us. Yeah. All of us will. Yeah. All of this is interconnected. Yeah. Cause this is all, we're all connected. There is, I always feel like there are certain things in America that are, that are, that feel impossible to get over. That is our love of violence and our love of racism. And that is the thing where it's like we have to do the deeper work yep. to, to get with it. And mm-hmm. violence is something that affects everybody across the board, mm-hmm. which I feel like that's harder. Um, racism. Can I say that sentence again? Violence is something it's going to be harder to get over than racism because by human nature, a lot of us have unchecked issues with violence. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what's helpful around being able to talk about it being interlocking systems of oppression rather mm-hmm. than like isolating one of the isms that's at play. Yeah, yeah. We do need to like so each of us have a different intersectional identity of race, gender, socioeconomic status, education level, immigration status, like body size. And so we're all subject to these systems of violence that play out along every single piece of our identity. Mm-hmm. And like Isolating even any single one of them puts us in this binary conversation, which creates competition, which creates right or wrong. Yeah. But it's more so like a a proportional measuring yeah. and and weighing out and sort of like figuring out where the density of survivorship is. And density of survivorship to me is kind of this way that I've like played with math. And how I put all of the things that I like have studied together mm-hmm. around how do you multiply the types of experiences that have been traumatic, the systems by which you've experienced them, the like qualities that you've experienced those on, how young were you, how frequently you've experienced it, like how many years did you experience it for, and then ended up how does it feel to you on a day-to-day basis. Mm-hmm. And so depending on our survivorship of how our sexual identity and our race and our body size and our socioeconomic status and like our ancestry and our relationship with colonialism, it all comes together into this like conglomeration of a positionality mm. that you can kind of think about if you want a visual. This is some of the ways that I teach it. So each one of those like lines of your identity is like a stick on a kerplunk game. Mm-hmm. And it comes together to hold a certain amount of marbles. 
Got you. And we need to put deference to the folks who are carrying more marbles by the way that their sticks go together. Okay. So the like denser your survivorship, mm-hmm. which racism in the United States is a dense, yes, dense survivorship, which like bands out to every single system we ever touch. From the medical system to the educational system, the social justice system, all of those systems have been perpe- like built to perpetuate racism. Okay. So like we think sometimes that like healing is the thing that's necessary. So like I'm going to go on a little bit of a rabbit hole. But okay, healing's necessary right now. We need to heal from trauma, right? Uh-huh. But the Western medical system has been built inherently to be racist. Mm. It's been built inherently to be classist. It's been built to like idealize health for those who have access to protection from white supremacy. Mm. Wow. So even our healing modalities have to be deeply, deeply questioned and radicalized right now. Yeah. Because read post-traumatic slave syndrome by Joy DeGroy and like her mapping of the medical system and how it was created on the like violation of black bodies. Mm-hmm. And then you have to question the origin of everything you ever heard or learned that was supposed to be like of good medical or healing services. Yeah. So being a health professional, I've had to question every single lineage that I've ever learned. And like, what do I can I bring to this table to actually be of service? Man, man, that's um, that's heavy because it 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 it. it challenges everything that we know about everything. everything like doctors healing the whole getting better thing um i would almost suggest that i remember you and i we've we've had plenty of conversations about this but like uh the whole allyship oh yes i was hoping you were gonna talk about that i i wanted oh, to know yeah. and why i'm not saying it's problematic per se but i don't think it's as it's complicated how is allyship, white allyship in particular, complicated? <laughs> um, okay, so allyship at its base yes. assumes relationship. Mm. It can. I don't know how allyship doesn't happen without relationship. Absolutely. So if we assume that relationship is part of allyship. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then we also take the given in this math problem that like, Racism has caused a shit ton of trauma over and over and over again. Yeah. So in the simplistic binary, which I don't like, but we'll say that white people are the perpetrators and folks of color, particularly black folks in the United States and indigenous folks in the United States are the survivors. Okay. That is the blueprint of racism. Yeah. And so white folks why the fuck as perpetrators would you think that your survivors or your victims would want to ally with you unless you show that you are completely committed to doing everything in your power to not perpetrate? Mm. And it does not mean that you just get to show up with a like, nice smile and a nice attitude mm-hmm. and be sweet and want to be friends. Yeah. You have to show that you are committed to the co-liberation of all humans at a very deep level, and then trust can be built. Then allyship could be built. Yeah. But it's not, an initial, it's not an initial goal. Because any time you try to force a relationship on a survivor, mm-hmm. you are perpetrating. Yeah. And yeah. also, we need to check ourselves on the fact that like, if we have been in the perpetrator stance as white folks in the United States, a minimum participant, but folks of color will fawn to us. That's true. Folks of color will freeze and folks of color will submit. And so just because somebody's going along with you and you're a white person 
that does not necessarily mean there's an authentic relationship there mm. because that's a survival response. So are you doing the work to make sure that neither of you are in your survival response? And that takes a lot of time. Okay. Or a lot of like very overt purposeful yeah. action yeah. that gains trust in an instant. I, I get that. For example, I see a lot of people and they want to know how they could be the best ally. And I tell them to look within themselves and do their personal work. Also, talk to their their racist cousins, their racist uncles, Your Honor. grandmothers, things like that. Things but that's that make not them allyship. That's advocacy. Oh, oh okay. Yeah. That's different. Yeah. Because I feel like if you want to be a good friend of me, I need you to be a friend of me when I'm not here. Bingo. You know what I'm saying? Like, don't tell me, oh, I'm a good white person. I don't give a fuck. Because I've heard that before. Wait a second. I just... I don't know if Bingo has some sort of weird etymology. I don't know. But right on. Yeah. That one. Right on. (laughs) But I I mean, that's what. What do you mean right on? You know, and like I got, um, I posted something on Instagram because this is one of the like major war fronts, right? On like Mm -hmm. Instagram posts. Okay, go ahead. Here we go, right? But like I put out there that um, one of the, the brilliant black social workers that I follow was doing a commentary on allyship and saying that exactly what you mirrored. Is that like, white folks, don't be my friend. I already have plenty of friends. Yeah. We are already doing powerful work. We have survived. We don't have to do hardly anything right now except to take care of each other, rest, and be well. Mm. The white folks don't kind of like try to create a relationship with me right now because it's fashionable like you were talking about. Mm -hmm. Figure out how to deconstruct white supremacy within your own body, within your own home within your finances, within your organizations, like do that demo work. Mm. Do that demo work. Facts. Fast. Yes. At that point, then we'll, it's like, why should I have, I mean, no, 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 not no why. We should have to vet for trust. Mm. And my vetting process as a white person right now is to show how actively I'm deconstructing white supremacy with every word I speak. Mm-hmm. With every breath I breathe, with every assumption I make, with every dollar I spend, as best as I can, and then like catch myself when I fail and try again. I honestly listen to you speak about this. It kind of likens me to and what and sidebar in general when I'm talking to people about the oppression and white supremacy and things like that. I always like to give an example of myself. I never challenge anybody to do anything that I'm not willing to do myself. So I would or, or give an example. Of this. So I was saying that when dealing with white supremacy and coming to grips with, you know, that that level of privilege and what that means, I tell people I do the personal work. So I'm I recognize that I am a cis male. There's privilege that comes with that. And the privilege, the privilege does not give a fuck about my opinion. The privilege doesn't give a fuck that, like, I can be like, oh, no, I'm not a rapist. I'm not a terrible oh, person. Oh, I'm I not all this. Right. But the thing is, the fact is, I have privilege. Like, it doesn't give a fuck. Like, the facts are Mm -hmm. that if there's a certain situation that happens as a man, I'm going to get I'm going to get the benefit of the doubt in certain cases. You know what I'm saying? Like, uh, so I I look at that and that's Mm -hmm. not anything. And I don't feel like I need to tell somebody, look, look, like I need to walk up to a woman and be like, listen, I'm not a rapist. For what? (laughs) You know what I'm saying? Like, first of all, that sounds wild creepy. So when I hear white people go, I'm not a rapist, <laughs> racist. You know what I think? You're probably a racist. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, 
Because it's it's sickening and it's a little creepy. And that's what, when I related to people in that way, they go, oh, and I was like, why does rape? Why is rape more understandable than murder? Because I, I, a lot of some people didn't get mm. the Black Lives Matter thing. And then when I explained it, I was like, imagine you someone is raping blondes and you're a blonde. And then instead of them getting arrested, they get two weeks vacation. You would be a little bit nervous about going outside. And this person I'm speaking, I was speaking about, they were like, yeah, I would be. That sounds terrifying. And I was like, yeah, imagine murder. You know what I'm saying? Like, and I'm not saying that one thing is better than the other. These are both horrible acts. Yep. But we are, we are talking about these are terrible things. If I can understand why someone, a female presenting person, would be terrified at catcalling walking home, they should understand how I would be terrified by policemen following me. Because mm-hmm. while we do not see Oh, you know, like, yeah, go ahead, go ahead. There's okay. The sickening part of that is like there's a level of profitability as to which one's hidden and which one's visibilized. Mm, how so? We'll go there for in a second. Go ahead. But what you're talking about is like each of those each of those behaviors or isms. Like I'm either a racist or a sexist. I practice racism or mm-hmm. I practice sexism. Each of those are a system of violence. Absolutely. And they're all co-occurring. Mm-hmm. And they all have different ramifications. Yeah, it's completely separate, but work together. But they work together. Yes. Yep. This is all the dark arts, y'all. Plessy versus Ferguson. Separate, but equal. <clears throat> yes, that's right. And, American class. And to jump into Harry Potter, <laughs> where we're talking about the, <laughs> the dark arts right now. So our obligation collectively is to figure out, like, how, how do these systems of violence play out? It's not whether or not they exist. If you're in that conversation of whether or not they exist, like, go ahead and keep reading. Mm-hmm. If you believe that they exist then your, your next step is to figure out how do they act. Mm. And however they have acted, how have I, in my body, survived them? Yeah. So that's a question for white folks when we're talking about racism, centering racism right now, is how have I survived racism? Mm. Because if we hear racism as white folks, we've been told that that happens to diverse folks, divergent from white. Mm. Yeah. But I've survived racism in a certain way. Yeah. I have survived it through fawning it, mm-hmm. saying things that were racist, mm-hmm. submitting to it, going along to get along, yeah. or freezing in the face of it. So my job is to figure out how I've done that to every system, though. Yeah. We've all done any of our survival system, survival responses to systems of violence. And so we're all contending with it. Mm. And I think that's what the, like, if there's a universal invitation for us to contend to, contend with how we have survived and how we have participated in systems of violence, that's where the healing's at. Because for every system that you've survived as the object of oppression, then you are a badass survivor. Mm -hmm. And that is a narrative that we need to flip because we've pathologized survivorship for far too long, particularly in the medical community. Yeah, We focus on the symptoms of survivorship rather than what we are surviving. Indeed, indeed. When you hear... In general, hey, when you hear, oh, go ahead, go ahead. Oh, yeah. ah, shit, I would say I cancer it? survivor. No, no, no. Go oh, ahead. bring it. Yeah. Yeah. Like, when you hear cancer survivor, we automatically go through, oh, they must have been through so much pain. Not they overcame. You know, uh, I think, okay. Or which systems caused that, that cancer? Because mm. that is a direct 
direct relationship to our bodies overproducing the types of neurochemicals that are presented when we are presented with a system of threat. And if racism and since racism has existed with every breath mm-hmm. within these United States as they are planted right now since the w- arrival of white folks, yeah, that's a whole many, 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 many generations and epigenetic imprint of the survivorship of violence mm. of white supremacy. You can map every single medical symptom back to the instigation of white supremacy. Yeah. That's what we we have to flip flip the fucking system right now. Yeah. Um and that's what I'm about. Yeah. I and was it gonna plays say, out it plays out in your body. It does. I was gonna say realistically speaking, is that something that happens within our generation or the next? I think it's already happening. Mm, okay. And it's just gonna keep hopefully with the momentum that I see building right now, mm-hmm. keep moving forward towards more and more regenerative health. I've always thought that it should be added in the curriculum of schools to talk about American history, but also talk specifically our class specifically. And I'm talking about as early as elementary school, white privilege that everyone should take it like in dismantling white privilege as, as this, because people need to know the truth and how history affects us now to this day. Uh, I was taught something totally different growing up when I was coming up. Christopher Columbus was a hero. Yep. And we used to play and we knew that Indians, we didn't look into the concept. First of all, they were called Indians and not Native Americans, you know, <laughs> and you were you were taught all these concepts and you were look at you were there's some layers to that. Yeah, though, there's layers. There's a narrative. That because folks have reclaimed the word, though. Yeah. And, and granted, yes, yeah. I can imagine. Anyway, we'll spend but but. To to know that when you were young, you're taught a, a certain narrative. One hundred percent. It's 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 done by Hollywood. You know, we grew up watching the westerns. There's there's the Hollywood way of living. There's the the edu- the, the textbooks, because I think when we were younger, we trusted the textbook as law, as historical law, and did not realize. Like I remember, it felt so radical when I would hear somebody go, "You know, the textbooks are lying." I was like, what? It was I was talking to my dad. And I was like, <laughs> he was like, Yeah, that shit's not true. And he was like, remember who history is written by. He was like, if 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 you and he was like, if an enemy of yours and I got into a uh got into an argument, and let's say you won the fight, and he's telling his friends how the fight went, how do you think he's gonna tell him? Like he's probably gonna lie towards it. He was like, That is American history. And I it blew my mind. I think I was like 10. Mm-hmm. You know, and so, but it also let me know, like, oh, question everything. Question everything. This is a grain of salt. History is a grain. History written on paper is a grain of salt compared, which I think that's very interesting. I, all right, I see where you're going, Morgan. Dropping in knowledge. This is great. <laughs> this is great. This is what happens when you when you give your friends gin, um, before. <laughs> Oh, uh, it's a great. What did you call this thing? Huh? Oh, no. Um, oh, it was like a uh, a French 75, mm, but delicious. with a little lavender twist. Good. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, uh, next. I, yes. We do need to talk about epigenetics and our polyvagal system. If we want to nerd out a little bit. Okay. But it's towards the solution. Do, do you want to go there now yeah, or do you want to go there later? No, let's go there now. Let's go with towards the solution because I think we've been talking about the problem and how it exists in people mm-hmm. till this day and how it exists in the overall culture and even it affects our bodies from a molecular level. 100%. How do we do the work to start 
healing and improving. <laughs> yes. Let's do it. All right, go ahead. Um, okay, so this is a piece of the puzzle, but I think it's the like one of the more core pieces of the puzzle that we need to understand to be able to do all the other pieces that are already co-occurring and co-happening right now. Um, but it, at the base of it, we all have a really pretty similarly functioning nervous system. We all share the same nervous system in, a, in the sense. And our nervous systems have been picking up on reality and making like moment to moment electrical options for us to be able to continue to persist and exist on this planet. And so we have some pretty basic systems that we are at a place where we can completely map them based off of modern day science and engage with them effectively. Um, And one of those systems is our like polyvagal system. Um, or our vagal nerve mm-hmm. and it is a system of um, of nerves at the kind of core center of our being that communicates from our heart to our like our, our respiratory function our cardiovascular function so our heart and our lungs sensations in our gut um, and it brings it up to our base brain our base brain that navigates whether or not we're going to go into that fight fight free submit or fawn response and so there's this constant communication from our body to our brain that we have to survive white supremacy have navigated in certain ways. And so that way over time, our like vagal nervous system, which is responsible for keeping some sort of sense of homeostasis in our body has been wired by the way that our ancestors have survived. Mm. And it completely impacts our brain function, picks up on vocal tone, picks up on respiratory rate, picks up on like cardiovascular function. Like we co-communicate body to body. Mm -hmm. And so if my body being from a lineage that has had very, very, very little melanin in my skin and carries the ancestry that I do of having like participated in slavery and participated in other forms of white supremacy. My body has learned over time how to perpetuate my safety as a white person, mm-hmm. which means that my survival system of those five survival responses that the vagal polyvagal system is responsible for helping us figure out which of those options is the most viable for my survival. Then I have over time become more habituated to I either freeze, submit, or fawn response. Okay. Potentially. And so the way we interact with that is through being able to create an opportunity for us to pay attention to breathing and moving in our body that does not keep us locked in to any of those survival responses. And so getting to know how we breathe and how we move and what our bodies feel like in those survival responses so that we can then create sensations in our body to opt out of them. Mm. And when we opt out or opt into a non-survival-based response, we have a much greater capacity to be able to keep the parts of our brain on that help us know that we exist, to help us authentically speak, to help us create empathy, and to be able to think about solutions. But while our bodies are in survival responses, we have limited brain function. And so each of us in our own way is challenged to keep our bodies turned on in a more full systems. You might call it like a parasympathetic response where we're able to like rest, digest, or create ease and connection. We need to practice doing that. And so each of us are needing to do that in different ways based off of like the diversity of our survivorship. So we're rewiring our nervous system with every breath with every movement, with every eye contact, 
like with every like word we speak. So mm-hmm. folks are like, oh, I'm just gonna like, you know, resolve my trauma when I go to therapy. That's like one hour of like 168 a week. Yeah. Yeah. Y'all, you gotta practice this outside of therapy. Absolutely. You gotta practice it with every relationship. That's a lot. It's a lot. And it's, it's a lot. It's possible. Yeah. I think anything is possible when you put your mind to it. I think whole body um, to it. Your whole body to it. I think it 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 has a lot to do with the work. Putting in the work. I think we all are just kind of evolving and learning different lessons. I know myself. I learn lessons in moving forward in in myself, putting in the work with others, right? And I feel like it's an ongoing process. It's like like how when we all trying to search for that 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 nirvana that peace, mm-hmm. you know, we we know we see it, we just we just are constantly working towards it. And there are things that come on in our lives that come through in our lives that challenge that very notion, and we just got to kind of recognize that for what it is. Because I think it's all about just being mindful, being mindful of the things and going about it. We're, we're, yeah, and you also yeah. made me think about the fact that like. If you have been protected by systems of oppression, uh-huh. you'll be able to find something that feels like how nirvana is described mm. real quick because you're protected by systems of violence. Mm. You can go to a place where it doesn't hurt too bad pretty quickly by bypassing, yeah. not actually having to contend with the systems of oppression. Mm. Yeah. So like Isn't if it? your nirvana was bypassed by like mm-hmm. economic ease, the color of your skin yeah. or your gender identity, like that's not Nirvana. That's like, all right. So I think I mentioned this before, but it was sort of like that scene in Fight Club that I love where he pours the acid on the guy's hand. Mm. Oh. And he's, he's ah. like, I'm going to take me to a different place. And he thinks of like the woods and he slaps him. He's like, no, I need you to feel this pain. I need you to be present in this pain so you can get through this. Because it's only when you accept the fact that you have pain, you can get through anything. And I thought that was such a powerful message in Fight Club. And I related that throughout my life and dealing with my trauma. Like, stop ignoring the things that happen to you. Stop ignoring your depression. Stop ignoring your pain. Lean into that shit and get through it and become confrontational. Like, become confrontational with getting better. You mm-hmm. know, um, I, I am, some people, they always go, yeah, I don't like comfort. I don't like conflict. I love conflict. I love conflict when it's positive. Yes. Like, speak on that shit. Talk about that shit. If you have something to say about me, say it. You know, I, I will. And, and I think it's because I'd rather know than not know. I'm a curious person. So I'd rather know than not know how people feel about me and vice versa. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. like, thinking back to, like, what you're talking about around pain. Mm-hmm. Um, is that, like, it's very much a white body supremacist idea that, like, healing is supposed to help you feel better. Oh, oh. we're gonna get healthier yeah but it's healing hurts yeah it's only healing is so so painful because Mm. you need to come to terms with the felt visceral sensation of your survivorship Mm. indeed and for folks who have bypassed yeah the density of survivorship that comes along when because you survive oppression, you, by virtue of starting to pay attention to those systems, you will vicariously start to feel them. Mm-hmm. 
Okay. And white folks have been told that they're allowed to feel comfortable and okay all the time, even while they're doing healing work. Healing work is supposed to be feel peaceful and easeful. And this mm-hmm. is coming from somebody who was bred in the yoga culture, mm-hmm. like and bred in the like hyper Jesus culture that like mm-hmm. you accept healing and you do it and you're gonna feel amazing. Yeah. Nah. Trauma work hurts. Yeah. And similarly to any sort of system that knows how to break and then to mend. You always mend when you actually finally attend to the break. Got you. I was going to ask about that. Like, what is the tunnel? Because it's a tunnel. We have, we all are born blissfully ignorant. And then you go through a healing process, but then you come out of it. Mm-hmm. And when you come out of it, how, how is that supposed to look? Well, right now we're not going to come out of it anytime soon. No. We're in the mm-hmm. thick of it for a long time. So mm-hmm. I think like even thinking about needing to come out of it, it's like, how do you stay in it? Mm, okay. Gotcha. Feels a little bit more pertinent to where we're at right now. Yeah, yeah. And so how do you take care of yourself while you're continuing to be in relationship with pain? <laughs> That's a question I've been asking myself for the past 20 years. But yeah. And we all have our own science behind it, right? And it's yeah. like making sure that for every system of oppression that we've bypassed because of our position of privilege, that we're like leveraging for the freedom of others. And for every system that we have survived and we are needing to mend, that we're doing the mending. Mm. And so for the, the folks who exist that have a higher density of survivorship and a lot more mending to do, that's their job. Yeah. To rest, take care of their bodies. And for those who have any sort of ounce of energy that's left over because they have been protected by systems of oppression, what are you doing with that energy? You need to also tend to your own wounds. Make sure that because anybody, particularly white folks right now, working past their capacity and past their wisdom of survivorship and into a world where they're like, I'm just going to be a good human. Mm. But you haven't like actually like figured out how you're going to be an anti-racist. Yeah. Um, yeah. Then like we all have our own layer of work to do right now. Mm. Um, and I'm encouraged by what I'm seeing. Yeah. Because conversations that were not possible when I was a kid because of the silence of white supremacy mm-hmm. are happening. Yeah, I, I, I believe so. I'm seeing a lot more people questioning themselves. I respect the person who questions themselves more than they question me. Because I yeah. feel like when they question me, it's a way, how do I justify the way I've been feeling? And I need you to make me feel okay about it. <laughs> it's when they question themselves and they do the work. Mm-hmm. Don't talk to me. <laughs> do yourself, you know what I'm saying? Like, I think that's more important. Mm-hmm. I feel like hopefully America is at this turning point where we can be the country that we want to be, that we see them, that the fictionalized uh, utopia that we once thought we were. I don't know if that's possible. It's not, but here's the thing. <laughs> I think that um, I but think I, but we I can think grow com- into I something. Com- I think communities can heal. Yeah, communities can heal. And I feel like that's an important aspect of it. Uh, so as we're, as we're moving along and cause I, I feel like I kind of want to have a, a conclusion Do it. to this as we're moving along, what do you think are the current happenings and what do you think is going to happen next? Like realistically speaking, looking at the political climate, looking at the social climate, everything's going now. What do you think may be the next steps and what do you think, should happen versus what is happening. Yeah. 
bars. This is what I do. I bring in the tough questions. There's like six and there's like a full dissertation. So I'm going to simplify I'm going to simplify it for you. Okay. What do you think should happen? Uh-huh. And what do you think is happening? And are they the same thing? Okay, what do I think should happen and what do I think is happening? Yeah. Hmm. That's what I do, ladies and gentlemen. I've gotten better at asking people questions. Back in the day, ladies I used to be like, Ladies and gentlemen, please. Ladies and gentlemen. Ladies and gentlemen. Ladies and gentlemen. Ladies. That's what we're doing. Ladies and gentlemen. Morgan, did you make that up? My community did. Okay. I'm about to feel like, ladies. I've never heard ladies. I know. Gender inclusive. Let's practice. Oh, that's, that's pretty cool. It's fun. All right, we'll try. And gentle thems. Here we are. Ladies and th- gentle thems. You know, you're not going to tongue twist me on this damn thing. Um, <laughs> this is not an avoidance tactic. I'm definitely thinking about your questions. All right, cool, cool, cool. Yeah, nah, yeah. I was just, I'm, I'm fucking around. Yeah. I, I think this is, um, but yeah, it is a thing that we need to look forward to as a society. Yeah. Um, and be real with ourselves about what's currently going on. Yeah. What's What's the next thing that should happen? And also being realistic, what's the next thing that's happening? Do you think that we go back to normal? Never. Is that because of COVID or what else is going on? I don't think that we can mutually coexist during this much upheaval Mm. um, and pretend that our earth is ever going to be the same. Like we are getting tilled and bulldozed and if we were the earth and trees around us because we are because we all coexist within this ecosystem mm-hmm. like we're getting fucking like bulldozed up right now yeah and there's some folks that be like why is the problem with the bulldozer up my ass because <laughs> <laughs> they don't see the necessity of the like clearing of the land and then there's folks who are like yeah. oh yeah the land's getting cleared yeah for something new um and so i think on one hand like the reality that we're existing within is that we're all being tested as to how our, how much can our nervous systems handle and still stay as healthy and present as possible. Mm. Um, and to also increase our risk tolerance and our window of tolerance to engage in risk for the safety of ourselves and the safety of others. Um, if you have only worked so hard as to protect yourself, we are now being challenged as to like, what are you doing to protect others? Uh, um, got it. And make that shift. And so, for the folks who have experienced more protection of systems of depression, who have bypassed that hurt, um, who have like been protected by white body supremacy in any way, um, then it is engaging with the discomfort of being able to stay present with decreasing your level of comfort to be able to take action Mm, okay right so decreasing your level of comfort could be like okay how do i allocate a certain percentage of my income towards efforts that i actually believe in because if i continue to just put it into a savings account that's like being multiplied by such and such investment firm Mm -hmm. i know i'm participating in violence so how do i pull out of that system and then re redistribute sort of like racist tides reparations yeah yeah so that's one form of reparations right But like we're being we're being asked to, mm-hmm. I think, do that and lean into the discomfort of how do I reorganize my entire life? Because I am admitting that my entire life has been organized towards goals perpetuated by white bodied supremacy. Mm. And it plays out to like 
where like everything we do yeah where we buy our clothes how much money do you spend on your eyebrows like you know what where does that all go yeah and why do you anyways and why do you do the things you do so we're all asking each other all these questions Uh on like how do you spend your time how do you spend your money how are you breathing who are you in relationship with Mm -hmm. everything's up for question right now so if we are all questioning then we are all going to be like in our flight, fight, free, submit, or fond responses a little more often than not. Yeah. So we do need to prepare for the possibility of the violence that happens because of that. Got it. So trauma healing, one of the things that I was taught at the very beginning, which I hold on very true, even though a bunch of other shit I needed to let go of, mm-hmm. is that it's going to get a little bit worse before it gets better every time you start to do trauma work. Mm-hmm. So everybody in, your bo- in our body, like remind ourselves that healing's going to hurt. And if I start to feel pain... I'm probably okay Mm -hmm. because I'm leaning into reality. Yeah. How do I take care of myself while I feel pain rather than like, how do I take care of myself so I can stop feeling pain? Mm, Okay. Am I engaging in the kind of pain that's spurring me towards action Mm -hmm. or am I engaging the kind of pain that's like reopening my trauma wound enough that I'm not actually healing Yeah. so that I do need to like take some distance and take care of myself. And we're all at a different place based off of our survivorship. Yeah. I think there's a difference between going, uh, being self-deprecating versus doing the work and, and actively healing. Mm-hmm. Because I don't think you get anywhere by saying, oh, I'm just a terrible person. It's just more affirming the shit that you know. It's, or, or trying, to, trying to make light of the affirmation of the world around you. You know, I, I've had friends who go, yeah, I know the world is racist. And I know that I'm a white man. And I get things like that, but you know, case of case of right? <laughs> or there's a person like, hey, I recognize this is the privilege that I have. This hurts, but let's let's see how we can change it from this day forth. Mm-hmm. Because once you gain knowledge, it is. I feel like it, with anything, once you have the knowledge, it is up to you what you do with it. It's it's all in how you take that information. I mm-hmm. um, and I think we're with that assessment. So we're like in a place to figure out you know i'm gonna jump a little bit from what you're saying chris all right go ahead I fully agree um but uh to get to know our survival responses mm-hmm. and what they are being in response to mm-hmm. um and i also think that we have some like level of sort of like i don't know responsibility to understand how change happens so that we can be patient enough to create sustainable change And so like every one of us goes through like, you know, there's different models of being able to map change, but like somewhere, you know, cross section of all of them is like, well, we'll like think about making a change and we'll think about it a lot. And then we start talking about it and then we start trying it out and then we start doing it and then we start doing it a little bit and then we fuck up and then we start doing a little bit more and then we get better at it and then we sustain it as a habit. Yeah. Every change is like that. Mm-hmm. So we also need to like be able to map where we're at and continue to push ourselves to the next level. Okay. To be able to sustain the kind of change that we want. And I think one of the major authors that's pushing the narrative forward that like can, we can use as a map mm-hmm. in conjunction with getting to know how our bodies operate. Mm-hmm. Um, is, and, well, and she talks about embodiment practices quite often is Adrienne Marie Brown and emergent strategy. Okay. She talks about being able to move at a sustainable pace that inspires trust so that we can collectively make change with each other. Got you. And do so modeling 
systems that are sustainable, natural systems that exist that co-take care of each other, like forests and mycelium and flocks mm. of birds, yeah. like how those ecosystems mm -hmm. share resources and time to be able to move together. Because none of this is going to be done based off of a narrative of the individualism that white-bodied supremacy has perpetuated. Got it. Got it. Man, that is, um, Morgan, that is amazing. That is amazing. I think uh, you've given me a lot of knowledge. You've given the listener, hopefully the listener is put on to so much. And I feel like this is such a fruitful conversation. Before we leave, do you have any recommendations of how people could further get this knowledge besides listening to this podcast? Um, but how can they go deeper into, you know, the trauma, the the ways that uh, what we discussed today, everything. Do you have any recommendations for someone who is just starting? I know you mentioned a couple books. Yeah. Well, yeah. I think uh, my, what my brain's going to is every breath counts. Mm -hmm. Every breath is healing. Pay attention to your breath. Pay attention to how your body's feeling. Mm. And be able to make choices that help you feel interconnected and empowered. Um, and fight for those choices. Mm. whatever that might mean for your survivorship. Okay. I think that in the same way that we've all thought, well, yeah, we should all have a primary care physician. We should have a doc. I think we should all have some sort of healer in our life where we are actually addressing our relationship with white supremacy. So whether you do that with your naturopath, with your grandma, with like your therapist, mm -hmm. somebody who can hold you accountable in that process. Okay. And everybody's survivorship of white supremacy so that pushes back against like not doing our trauma work. So yeah. someone or a community with whom you are doing that work actively and being held accountable. Um, and there's some really great trainings out there like Resma Menica, who's the author of My Grandmother's Hands, which is a uh, fantastic somatic-based book about healing racialized trauma. He has a free online five-hour course. Um, uh, last name Kendi on how to be an, how to be an anti-racist. He also has a course, a baby book out there on how to make an anti-racist baby. Nice. Um, that's been an entry point into my family because I'm like, yo, I'm going to have a brown or black baby. Yeah. And so we're going to have this conversation. All right. We need to be an anti-racist family. Mm. Um, and can, I mean, continue to pay attention to folks who are centering the definition of trauma as the inter the survivorship of the interlocking systems of oppression. Folks who are pushing back against the like Western medicalized definition of trauma and who are doing embodied nervous system based work around anti-oppressive practice in relationship. Wow. And so there's a lot of us that are doing that. Yeah. Um, and I, my hope is that I can continue to create material that's as accessible as possible and collaborative as possible to make those conversations more widely accessible. All right. All right. That is that is excellent. There's so much to digest. And I think this has been a, a beautiful moment that I had the chance to share with you. I appreciate you as a friend. I appreciate you as an educator as well. And just all around dopeness. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. I appreciate you. All right. Everybody, thank you all for listening. This has been a wonderful experience. Remember that you can hear me on all these platforms. Uh, wherever you listen to podcasts, I'm out here and there. So check them out. Uh, thank you all for listening. This has been Chris Talks. Remember, be good to your people, bro.
This program is brought to you by On Purpose Recordings. Created and produced by Chris Blunt. Mixed and edited by Joff Gibbs.